All right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Tell you right now, I hope you're ready for to use your minds to pay attention. This isn't going to be maybe the easiest sermon you're going to ever hear uh, in that it's a complicated subject, very complicated. I'm going to try to cover all of Mark chapter 13 this morning, and uh, you'll, you'll see why it's so challenging. But I want to share some background stuff with you before we get into the text of Mark 13. Paul Tripp writes about the concept of eternity amnesia, meaning that we tend to forget the perspective of eternity as we live our daily lives. It is so easy to get wrapped up in the the immediate, and that can cause us to get distracted, um, focus on stuff that we shouldn't be thinking about as much or put inordinate emphasis upon certain things. And so in writing about that, Tripp wrote that that brings with it unrealistic expectations. If we forget about eternity, then we begin to expect the present to give us more than it actually can. Tripp writes, if you fail to keep eternity in focus, you will ask the present world to be for you and do for you what it never can. We will tend to want the here and now to behave as only our final destination can. And our disappointments are always connected to our expectations. Get, get that concept in your mind. It's what we expect. You know, if you, when I went out with my parents to California when I was five years old, we had no air conditioning in the car, we had no seatbelt, so I didn't expect either one. And wasn't disappointed when it was as hot as it was. It just, that's just the way it was. But if you expect certain things, that's going to inevitably lead to disappointment if you don't get those satisfied. So if you live a life that is shaped by unrealistic expectations, and we all have them as Christians, we, we want heaven on earth and we kind of expect that. And if we don't get it, then we get impatient and angry and frustrated and we grumble and complain So if you live a life that's shaped by unrealistic expectations, you'll live a life burdened by disappointment at every turn. Eternity reminds us that this broken, groaning world will never deliver to us that paradise that our heart longs for. And so we'll be coming back to eternity amnesia throughout this message. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are called the synoptic Gospels. They all have chapters in them that, in which Jesus delivers what we call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives when he teaches it. Now, Mark chapter 13 is one of those chapters. Every time I come to, to Matthew 25 or Mark 13 or the chapters in Luke, every time... I, I say an extra long prayer, and I have prayed so much for this message this morning that you can track it, that it's helpful for you, because it's really hard stuff. 
But I say an extra long prayer, Lord, you've got to show me something. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, so that I can understand what Jesus said. Because it isn't easy to put together. And so uh, Jesus, however, in his teaching will help us, if we pay attention to it, avoid eternity amnesia. And so as we begin to approach Mark chapter 13, before we even read the text, I want to talk about for a moment, number one on your outline, the simplicity before the complexity. Most of us have a general understanding because of our church backgrounds that these three things are true. And so so everybody, some of you read Mark 13, some of you didn't. Some of you don't even think about this stuff. Some of you are very interested in it. Some of you listen to AFR and other Christian radio stations where some of the teachers are very much into this kind of stuff. And you might listen to that and you might be really on top of these issues. Some of you probably won't like what I say this morning. But others of you uh, won't like it because it's boring and long and everything else. But hopefully we'll all get something out of it. But the simplicity before the complexity, before you even dig into this stuff and analyze it all. Number or Letter A, first of all, we all know that Jesus is coming. B, we don't know when. Everybody in agreement so far? C, therefore, we know we're supposed to be watching, even though we spend a lot of time not. Okay, now as now we're going to get into the text in just a little bit. Not, then we're going to get into the complexity of it all. Then we're going to come back at the end and we're going to put it all back together and hopefully edify, be edified. But before we get to the text, I want to talk about a few things. So when I come to them, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's three Greek words that we should understand that we're going to come to more than once. The first one is blepo, which means to see. Sometimes it means, as you'll see, just to physically see something. But it also means to to watch, to beware. Look at verse 2. There Jesus simply says, oh, do you see these great buildings? He uses that word. In verse 5, See to it, make sure, so be, be watching for it, see to it. Verse 9, there it's tra- these are all good translations in their context. Verse 9, be on your guard. It's, it's a watching type thing. Down in verse 23, there it's translated, take heed. <coughs> and then over in 33 again, take heed. So that's the word blepo that, that I'll refer to when we come to it. The next word is Gregoreo, which is to Gregory, a name that we have for men. It means to watch or to be awake, and it's talking about spiritual watching, spiritual alertness, or vigilance. We see it in the end of verse 34, stay on the alert. Beginning of verse 35, Jesus says, stay on the alert. At the end of the whole message, in verse 37, Jesus says the same word, Gregoreo, be on the alert. Okay, And now the next one is just a teeny little word that shows up twice, but it is so important. You've heard me teach on it before, but in verses 7 and 10, we have the little Greek word dei, which means it is necessary. Look at verse 7. It must take place. You see that right in the middle there? It must. It's part of God's plan. 
It is part of something that God has decreed. It will take place. You're going to get your gummy bears. Jesus is going to return. And all of these other things that he refers to must take place. Look at verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. This is a necessary part of God's plan. All right. Now let's shift to the complex discussion. We're going to try to tear this apart. See what, if we can make sense out of it. The first part of it is letter A there. I've called it their understandable exchange. They exchange this conversation and it makes sense because the disciples and Jesus have just walked out of the temple. So let's read verses 1 through 4. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This is an understandable exchange because have you ever noticed the windmills between here and Saratoga? You look at those windmills, they don't, they're not that big, are they? Really? How, how tall are they? Maybe 50, 60 feet tall? Then you see a semi trailer come driving up with just one of the wings of those things and you look and go wait a minute that means that those things are way bigger than I think they are and when you come from Riceville and you take that one real big turn north you know and then there's that windmill you look you think you're going to run into it and you're just driving straight at this windmill it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and you still don't even get up close to it I I've never been up right next to one but I know that if I did I've done it with trees in the woods you'll see a tree from 50 60 feet away and think it's a dead elm I'll go out and cut it down then you walk up to it and it's way bigger than you thought if you walk up to one of those windmills it would look gigantic right how tall are they they're 2 300 feet tall they're humongous the temple, there was a 200-foot, if you looked at the back end of the temple, across the Kidron Valley, which they're going to go to, to the Mount of Olivet. And if you Google the temple right now, you'll get all kinds of pictures from that angle. You'll see the temple, and it doesn't look that big. But if you were to walk up to it, especially from down in the Kidron Valley, when they came out of the temple, they saw massive stones. Herod had rebuilt the temple, and it was, it was massive. And this is why the disciples responded. They said, teacher, look. What wonderful, what great, literally great stones. What wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, first time this word blepo shows up, he says to them, see, you see these? Now this is a bit of a rebuke. Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, you're all fascinated with this, aren't you? You're fascinated with the impressive look of this temple. And you can imagine there Jewish people who had been waiting for the Messiah to come. Here's the Messiah. Here's this wonderful temple that has been built for the Jewish people where they do their sacrifices. And you can imagine how excited they were. And Lord, look at, look at this thing. This is, this is fantastic. This is amazing. Here we are. It's going to happen. But Jesus says to them, oh, you see all these things? You're really impressed with these things? And oh, how easily we are, what causes sometimes our eternity amnesia is we are so easily impressed by the things of this world, the things that we get so wrapped up in. My team's not in the Super Bowl, but is yours? 
people who are, there's going to be people at the Super Bowl. There's going to be people having Super Bowl gatherings and parties all over the country. There's going to be some, some fans today who are just wild, okay? And they have expectations. Some of them are going to be very disappointed. But it's just amazing how wrapped up we can get in the things of this world. And that is why Jesus is saying to them, you see these stones here? Yeah? Pretty impressive, huh? Listen to what he says next. Verse 2. Not one stone that you see here today, not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. So I wouldn't put my hope on this temple. I wouldn't think this is never going to go away. Verse 3. So then they leave, they cross the Kidron Valley, and as he was sitting then on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Now, he, they ask, I believe they ask one question. If you're, if, if you're one of those people who have really gotten into the end time stuff and you listen to certain radio stations and the teachers are really into it, then again, you're going to have a, an idea of what you think it looks like and you might disagree with some of what I say today. So I'm just going to share with you what I go through every time. And I read this stuff in the other Gospels twice a year, every year for 30-whatever years. So I, I read this stuff pretty frequently, and I pray real hard because it's hard to put together. So I just humbly submit what I'm going to offer to you today and hope that as we read through it that, it's, that it helps. So they ask, I believe, one question. But some people say, no, it's two questions. Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? It's one question. And I think in most of their minds, it it was just one thing. They expected the end to come, Jesus to return, and the end of the age to happen, or Jesus to make it happen right now. But they're saying, so what are the signs? What are we supposed to be looking for? When when is this going to happen? That's the basic question that they're asking. Now, this leads us to what I have called, and I've used some artistic license here because I know technically it should be incomprehensible. If you can't handle it, then change it to an I. But it, it's uncomprehensible. The, this discussion that we have in the Bible in the Old Testament, the prophecies of Daniel and other prophets, in Jesus' discussion of the end times, in the whole book of Revelation. There's a lot of stuff, some of which we can understand, most of which I don't think we can. And that's why I've called it uncomprehensible. We can get a little bit of it, but not all of it. Now, the unco- now Jesus in the next uh, 29 verse or 31 verses is going to give us this Very hard to understand explanation. But I want to read to you a couple things about it before we get right into the text itself. So a simple solution someone has written, a simple solution to the problem of the relationship of, now let me tell you, there are two things Jesus is referring to. I think they thought they would happen at the same time. Jesus may have even thought they might happen at the same time. I'm not saying he was mistaken, I'm just saying he wasn't fully omniscient at that moment. He didn't know everything. He had emptied himself and become human. Fully God, fully human, but he didn't know everything. He will say that later in the text. He'll say that himself. Okay, So I'm not impugning Jesus in any way. 
I'm, and I'm not saying he was mistaken, like he really believed. I just think he's leaving some of it open. Okay? So, but here are the two events, and you've got to get this in your mind if you ever want to understand any of the end time stuff. And that is two events that Jesus is going to talk about is, first of all, number one, the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70. Forty years or so after Jesus said this, after Jesus was crucified and raised and ascended, about 40 years later in A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans and it was destroyed and the prophecy of verse 2 was completely fulfilled. The Roman army came in, destroyed the temple, not one stone was left upon another. That happened in history, and Jesus predicts it in verse 2. You see that? So that's going to happen. And the other event that they think is going to happen at the exact same time is the end of the age. We are in the last days. They were in the last days. Jesus brought the last days in. They thought, I think, that it was going to end when, whenever this gigantic event that Jesus was predicting would happen, that then Jesus would return. And as you read this chapter, it will sound like that's what's going to happen, which is what makes it hard. So, and so what we have to be, well, I'll come back to that in a little bit, but let me share with you a few thoughts, and then we'll get right into the text. A simple solution to the problem of the relationship between those two things, the destruction of Jerusalem in history in 70 A.D., and the second coming of Jesus, or the end of the age. A simple solution, and this is where most people that you hear on the radio will take it. They'll say that, uh, that you take certain verses and they refer specifically to the destruction of the temple and then verses 24 through 27 to the end times. Then it goes back to the, to the subject of the temple and then it goes back again to the end. And it kind of does that a little bit, but I don't think it's a clear cut. It's not that simple that you can just break it up like that. But, but I think once you get to that place where you accept that, then it feels good. Because it sounds like it it makes sense out of it, but I don't. I think that's too simple. Because my commentator said what I agree with. But the difficulty with this view is that the exegesis of the passage, when you exegete the passage itself, just take out of it what's there, it won't support that simplistic of an answer. That's my view. Okay. Now, on the other hand, some people project all of it that Jesus talks about to sometime in the distant future. I think that's not right. And then some people that I know, and I, and I agree with some of it, they think all of it was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't think that's right either. And as we read through it, you'll see, uh, that sounds like that was fulfilled. Uh, that doesn't sound like it was completely fulfilled. So that will be going on. So, now one solution could be And I just want to offer this to you, so hang with me, is a more theological understanding of what this is all talking about. If we realize that, you ready, you got your seatbelts on? Um, just, Just to wake up so you don't fall asleep. If we realize that the incarnation, Jesus coming, he was born on the earth, 
the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension into heaven. Can we all look back at that now and say that was one event? I mean, there were, there were four parts to it, but it, it was one basic event. God said, this is how I'm going to bring the gospel to the world. This is my plan of redemption. Okay, but there's one more element to that one event that hasn't happened yet. What is that? Jesus is going to return. Okay, but if we take a step back from the forest, we're living in the present, but God can see it past, present, and future. God planned it past, present, and future. It's already ordained. The Father knows the hour that Jesus is going to return. So if you take a step back and just look at the whole event of birth of Jesus, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and his return, it's all one event. It's all God's plan of salvation. If we look at it that way, but then we realize that we, though, are now in time in between the last two parts, the last two parts of that one event, then that helps me to say, okay, it's not here yet. So when Jesus talked about it here, but it isn't going to fully be consummated until here, it makes a little sense that when he talked about it, he included ingredients of both events. Destruction of Jerusalem, his return and consummation of the age and the introduction of the new age. Okay? I don't know. You might, you might be going, when's the Super Bowl start? That's fine. Let's move on to the text now. Let's go to the text itself and see what it says. And I hope that a little bit of what I've said is helpful. One last thing. In this passage, so these disciples ask him a question. Basically, hey, when's it going to happen? Clear up the mystery for me. In his answer, note that it is filled with 19 commandments. What does that tell you? If you were to say, Tim, tell me what it's going to look like at the end. And I said, well, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. Then when you look at, at that, and Israel was made a state in 1947, and, and I go through my whole scheme of putting it all together... What would I be missing? Jesus' message. He is message. He tells them a little bit, but it's filled with commandments of what you're supposed to be doing. So the per- Jesus' answer is one of exhortation. It tells us, this is what you need to be focused on, and this is what you need to do, and you won't understand the whole thing. All right. So he's preparing. he was preparing his disciples, and beyond them, he was writing something that would prepare us to live and to witness in a hostile world. And that's the intention of Jesus' answer. And that's what we need to leave with, rather than thinking, oh, we've got it all figured out. Does that make sense a little bit to anybody? Okay, wake up. Here we go. Into the text. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 5. And I'll just comment briefly on occasion. So just soak this in a little bit and see what Jesus has to say in answer to the question, when will this thing be destroyed and when will you return? When's going to be the end of the age? Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am, literally, I'm the Messiah, and they will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, 
Do not be frightened. These things must, these are part of the plan. They must take place. It is not yet the end. Now, now is that future? Is that now? Is that Ukraine? Back then, the Romans were fighting everybody. There were wars happening. There would be wars over the next 40 years, and there have been wars ever since. It's just part of, the, of this fallen world until Jesus returns. So, yeah, it is today, but it was then as well. But don't be frightened when you hear about wars. Those things have to take place. It's not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. We just had a huge one recently, but there were earthquakes in Jesus' day and earthquakes hundreds of years before Jesus. So that's, again, just a normal part. These will, there will be famines. These are just the beginning of birth pangs. These are, these are just the groaning of the earth waiting for redemption that will happen when Jesus returns. Verse 9, but look to yourselves or be on guard. Now, I believe right here he's talking specifically and directly to his immediate disciples because they all go through this. And by extension, because he hasn't returned yet, it applies to us as well. But he says directly to Peter and John and James and Andrew, be on your guard. They will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. That's, that's Jewish talk. He's talking to them. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Peter would stand before Nero Caesar as a testimony to them. And the gospel must, it's necessary for the gospel to be preached to all the nations. That's a big thing in end times discussions is, yeah, but the gospel hasn't been preached to all nations. The Apostle Paul said, I have preached the gospel to the whole world. So it was fulfilled then, but it's still being fulfilled today. So it's both. Verse 11, And when they arrest you and deliver you up, to them, he's saying, Do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. They had to do that. They had to give account for the hope that was in them. And some of them were thrown to the lions for it. But just don't don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. Brother will deliver brother to death, father his child. That was happening then, it's happening now. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all on account of my name. But if you endure hypomania, remain under that persecution until the end, until you die, uh, you'll be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now there's another one where modern day people who are really into the end times would say, the abomination of desolation, who is it? Is it Putin? Is it, you know, the Chinese ruler? Who is it? What do you think happened in 70 AD when the Roman general walked up into the temple of God, that temple that they were looking at that day, and he stood there and desecrated the temple? A Gentile walked right into the Holy of Holies or whatever he did that day. And then they commenced to destroying the whole thing. Don't you think that could be the abomination of desolation? That came in and desecrated, for sure, for sure. Is it going to happen again? Are they going to rebuild another temple in Jerusalem? I don't know. 
If it happens again, then it happens again. But I know what happened then for sure. Then let those who are in Judea, he's talking specifically, he's not talking about Cresco here. Although the principles might end up applying to us, depending on how things keep going. But if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. They're coming. They're going to kill you all. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or enter in and get anything out of the house. Why? Because it's, it's too late. Go. If you want to be saved. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And woe to those who are with child. If you're pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, you, you can't move very fast. It's not going to be good. Pray that it might not happen in the winter when it's harder to travel. For those, for those days are going to be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never shall. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Now what is he talking about there? It doesn't seem to me that even the destruction of Jerusalem met met quite that description, like worse than the flood. So there might be something coming that's going to be really bad. However, I think the Jews who went through that, and some of them who escaped to Masada, the fort up on the hill, and the zealots that went up to Masada, and if you read about the history of that, how the Romans besieged it, starved them out, they were cannibalizing one another, it was a, to them, I think it probably felt like the absolute worst imaginable situation a human being could go through. So I think it was fulfilled then. But there still might be a future fulfillment awaiting us. We just don't know. If anyone, Verse 21, if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ. Behold, there he is. Don't believe him. There'll be false Christs, false prophets, and I'm told that there were back then. There may be, maybe that'll happen again. They will arise, they'll show signs and wonders in order that even if possible, the elect would go astray. But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling. Now this is typical apocryphal prophetic language that can't physically happen but it's just saying there's going to be a cataclysmic, cataclysmic cosmic upheaval. And this is how the Hebrews said that. This is how Jesus said that. It's just going to be something huge. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Now it seems to me this hasn't completely happened yet. So it's still coming. Verse 26. They'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I don't think that's happened yet. I'm waiting for that. And then he will send forth his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds. I don't think that's happened. From the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Jesus is going to return. It will be visible. We will see it. And then he gives a couple parables. He said, now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. You can see it coming. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Some people think they're already happening, and they can say, 
Because, again, Israel was made a nation again in 1947. Maybe. Kim and I just did a little research online talking about the languages in the Bible. And Hebrew was a dead language for a long time. Now Hebrew is a living language again spoken in Israel. Maybe, maybe that's a sign of some of this coming true. I don't know. There's some wild things going on. I'm more open to the possibility that we're in the last days of the last days now than I've ever been because of how crazy it is getting. But I also see signs of hope. So I don't know if it'll be soon or if it'll be another thousand. I don't know. Which is okay, as he's going to say in a moment. Verse 32. Oh, 31. 30. Back up to 30. Real quick here. Ready? Truly I say to you, this... Now this is the part that probably makes it hardest. Verse 30. Because Jesus said to Peter, James, and Andrew, and John, he said, truly I say to you, this generation, and I just can't accept the interpretation that he's talking about, this generation, our generation today in 2020, you know, our generation, because we see these signs. uh, There's always been signs. I just can't accept that he's talking to us in this verse. He said, truly I say to you, this generation, he's talking to those guys about their generation. That's what that word means. I, I just can't get over that. And if you, if you interpret it different, I still love you. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So either it all happened in 70 AD, or enough of it happened that that generation experienced the end of that whole era. But yet the big fulfillment of it, the major complete fulfillment of it, is still in the future. That, that's where I'm at. But, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus' words are certain, reliable. He is predicting these things. They will happen. It might look different than we think, but it will happen. And then finally, But of that, 32, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. I don't even know, Jesus. I don't know everything while I'm on this earth. But the Father knows. So, take heed, keep on the alert. You don't know when the time is. And then he gives this other parable. Like a man going away on a journey, upon leaving, he put his slaves in charge. Who are the slaves? That's us. Until he returns, we're in charge. To each one he gives a task, and he commands them to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, midnight, cock crowing, in the morning, you don't know. So be on the alert, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Find you thinking the Super Bowl is the most important day of the year. And what I say to you, I say to everybody, be on the alert. All right. Now, one of our problems can be our unrealistic expectations, let us see. We can read the Bible and expect that with our mindset today, we are so 
scientific and analytical, the categories that we have all been raised with, the way we think as Westerners, is so different from the way they thought. And so, as some commentators have said, what we've got to do is allow for Jesus, who was in that moment, to speak in categories that those people would have had so that they could understand what he is saying. And we've got to make room for that rather than try to subject the Bible, which is written in Hebrew and then written in Greek, which is a translation of the Aramaic that Jesus actually spoke in and all that stuff. You've got to make allowance for that and say the way Jesus said it, just like the Old Testament prophets said it in a way that the Pharisees missed it when it came. We've got to say we cannot subject the Bible to analytical, scientific dissection and cutting and pasting in order to make it all fit for us. It's not, I don't think, it's, it's uncomprehensible, I think, in its totality. But there's a simplicity then beyond the complexity. What can we get out of this? Now that I have thoroughly confused you, what can we get out of this? I still think it's helpful to go through the exercise and to look at the complexities of it and to see that it's not as easy as you might think. And it scares me that sometimes Christians do put it and they get it so scientifically all figured out and they come with charts and graphs and schemes and and this is a big deal in our culture. In our Western evangelical culture, this is a big deal. People think they pretty well got it figured out. And it's going to look like this. And I just listen to that stuff and I just can't, I, I, it just doesn't fit with my study of and interaction with Scripture. I just need to step back, admit, maybe, I, maybe he showed me a little bit this time around. But here's the simplicity beyond the complexity. First of all, Jesus is coming. We don't know when. See, it's the same answers as we had in the first point. But hopefully maybe a little bit better understanding. So therefore, be on the watch. That was his commandment throughout that. Nineteen times he just, in different ways, said, be ready, be about his business. Don't be distracted by all this wonderful world and all these things that can make me happy. Don't be distracted by that. He put us here as we've been studying for the past several weeks. He put each one of us here. This is our mission. You are the missionaries. You are the missionaries. Some are foreign. We send them money. But what about you? This is our major mission field is where you live. And you leave here and you go to work and you go home and you spend time with your family and you spend time with friends and at athletic events and and doing what every single one of you is called to do. That is the mission field. And we cannot have eternity amnesia and forget that there's a whole big thing here and we're right in the middle of God unfolding his plan of redemption and our part in it is critically important. And that is what we are to be about. And if we go to a Super Bowl party, it's because we're about that. And if we, whatever we do, we take a position coaching somebody down there, or we take a position coaching somebody here, or we follow our kids or our grandkids here or there or wherever, 
It's all about this. God's necessary unfolding plan of redemption that is happening as we speak. So, I pray that perhaps a puzzle has been put into your theological jigsaw puzzle somewhere. You, maybe you fit some piece in a little bit. Maybe you had to take a couple pieces out because they, they were jammed in there and they don't fit. However, I pray that the Holy Spirit did something in you as we went through the very words of Jesus and that we get woken up from any eternity amnesia we might be suffering from and we realize the importance and the urgency of us being fishermen so that we can be ready and alert and sober-minded now as we go about what he's called us to do. So will you bow your heads with me? Now and pray before we take communion.